You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part two of a series in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We'll pause our reading there at the end of Matthew chapter 1, after verse 25. Now, if you have uh, been around church for some time, uh, even if you're not a regular churchgoer, you're likely to be familiar with the verses that I've just read. These are, of course, one of the Christmas readings, readings that become familiar around the Christian Christmas season. But as I said in the last episode, when we looked at the genealogy of Jesus, uh, Matthew's gospel has a particular interest in Joseph, whereas Luke's gospel tends to focus on Mary. So if you're familiar with those Christmas readings, of course, Mark doesn't tell us anything about the birth of Jesus. John's gospel uh, does, but not by a narrative from an earthly perspective. John takes us to the heavenly perspective and talks about the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling amongst us, John chapter 1. But if you're familiar with the, uh, the Christmas readings, then uh, you might be familiar with the account of Zachariah the priest and uh, his wife Elizabeth uh, conceived and they had a son called John. That's in Luke chapter 1. The Annunciation to Mary, the angel Gabriel visiting her, is also in Luke chapter 1. And in Luke chapter 2, we have the angels appearing to the shepherds in the fields. We have the birth of Jesus, then the angels appearing to the shepherds outside Bethlehem and the shepherds visiting uh, the baby and spreading the news about his birth. Luke, of course, goes on to tell us about Jesus being presented at the temple to um, where Anna and Simeon prophesy about him. And also then into his, when he was 12 years old, visiting the temple with Mary and Joseph. Matthew doesn't tell us about the shepherds. Matthew doesn't tell us about Zachariah. Zachariah was a relative of Mary or Elizabeth, his wife was, rather, as you read in, in Luke. But what um, what Matthew does do is to tell us about Joseph's experience. So it wasn't only Mary who saw an angel or the shepherds, it was Joseph too. And of course, in chapter two of Matthew, we'll read about the wise men who came from the east to see Jesus. So really, we need both Matthew and Luke to give us the full nativity play, if you like. 
but Matthew has a particular interest in Joseph. He also has a particular interest in the uh, kingship of Jesus. We saw in the genealogy that it, in Matthew's gospel, it follows the line of direct descendants of David, whether that is actually the ancestry of Joseph or not. Uh, or whether it's um, telling us just those who would have been king at the time, had there been a king, this is the kingly line. Uh, And of course, when Jesus is called the Christ, even in verse 18, the beginning of our reading for this uh, episode, said the birth of Jesus Christ, or as some versions put it, Jesus the Messiah, the promised king in David's line that the prophets spoke about. Well, this is how his birth came about. Mary, his mother, was betrothed to Joseph and she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Luke tells us how that came about, how the angel Gabriel came to her, shows us Mary's marvellous faith as she says, let it be to me as you have said, I am the Lord's servant. She's ready to serve. She makes herself available. She is a virgin. The word is specifically used in Luke's gospel. There's no question in both Gospels that she was not pregnant by the normal means. She was uh, a virgin. There was no earthly father for this baby. This is an act of new creation. You cannot have, uh, it's not possible, of course, to have a baby in the normal course of events without a man being involved. But even if you took the genetic material of a woman and cloned that, you would still have a woman. You cannot have a man by cloning from a woman. You need a Y chromosome and women don't have that. They have two X chromosomes. And therefore, uh, this is undoubtedly an act of new creation by God. God has to produce new genetic material, at least the Y chromosome, uh, potentially both chromosomes, whether he used an egg from Mary or not, uh, we don't know. That's not given to us. The detail of the biology is not here. But there's no question at all that this is a miraculous event. Uh, And Matthew tells us that by saying before they came together. In other words, this is not Joseph's son. They have not slept together. Mary is betrothed to Joseph or pledged to be married to him, as other versions put it. Uh, that isn't a category that exists, at least in my part of the world and in modern times. Uh, we have engagement, which is, I suppose, a, a public declaration of intention to marry between two people. But an engagement can be broken off relatively easily. It's not legally binding. But betrothal in the ancient uh, world at the time when, when Jesus was born was a legally binding arrangement. Joseph could not break it off, nor could Mary, without uh, permission. And uh, so it's a bit stronger than just being engaged. Uh, and, And there are various ideas about what age Mary would have been. She could have been as young as 12. Um, Certainly girls of 12 might have been betrothed at that time for a a slightly longer betrothal. That's when a, a girl, even in modern Judaism is regarded as being a woman and part of the community of the religious community. For boys, it's 13 when they have their bar mitzvah. But it's possible that she was a little bit older, but probably a teenager, which makes it all the more remarkable when you read how she responds to the angel in Luke's gospel. But here it's not Mary 
who encounters the angel Joseph does. And and, and we get a, an insight into Joseph's character. Imagine this, that you're, you're Joseph and you discover that this young woman that you're betrothed to is uh, pregnant. And she tells you that she's seen an angel and the angel told her that this baby would come from the Holy Spirit. Would you believe it? Very hard to believe, isn't it? But Joseph is a man of noble character, a just man, verse 19 says. He was unwilling to put her to shame. Of course, if Mary had been found guilty of adultery, then under Jewish law, under the Old Testament law, she would have been, uh, she would have faced the death penalty. The Jewish people uh, may not have had the right to put to death people under their religious law. The Romans were ultimately in, in charge. That's why when Jesus was put to death, they had to involve the Romans. But certainly there would have been huge public shame. And Joseph does not want to do that to Mary. This is not a man who just simply sees her as a means to his future. It's not a proud man who is willing to cast her aside. He is a, a man of dignity, a man of compassion, uh, and although the implication seems to be that he doesn't believe Mary's story and, and who would, he, he's not going to cause her unnecessary harm. He's going to put her away to divorce her quietly. That's why verse 19, that idea of divorce is used because betrothal was legally binding. But he didn't do that hastily. Verse 20, he was considering these things. And uh, so here's a man who, who wants to be obedient to the law of God. The NIV says he's faithful to the law. That's how they interpret the phrase, a just man that the ESV uses. Um, and But he, he's not doing it in a rush, in a hurry. This is not a man who's motivated primarily about protecting his own dignity, but about doing what is right. Whether there was something about Mary that caused him to, 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 to pause, that had the ring of truth when she told him about the angel, uh, whether it was that she had, he had such confidence in her character that he couldn't believe that she would have been with another man. But in any case, he considers these things and an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. Now, just pause for a moment, because here we have a Joseph who's a dreamer. Does that ring a bell? Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that the Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob in the book of Genesis, was a dreamer. Even if you know the West End musical, uh, Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coats, you'll know that Joseph is a dreamer. He sings the song, I have a, had a, I closed my eyes, uh, and he has a dream in that vision, that vision in a dream. So there's a, an echo here of the Old Testament. We saw it in the genealogy, how careful Matthew is to tell us that Jesus is the continuation and the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. But even here, a Joseph who's, who, who God speaks to in dreams, not just here, but again, later on in Matthew, we'll read that Joseph again is spoken to in a dream. So a dreaming Joseph. And in fact, later on, we'll discover that it's Joseph who saves Jesus by uh, through taking him into Egypt and bringing him out of Egypt again. So more of that later. That's also a bit of an echo of the Joseph, the son of Jacob. In fact, just look at the genealogy. What was the name of Joseph's father? Verse 16 says, Jacob. 
so we have Joseph, the son of Jacob, who is spoken to by God in dreams and who rescues the promised one from Egypt. God is, is fulfilling the pattern of the Old Testament in the life of Jesus. But the other interesting thing about Joseph, as we read about him in these chapters, is that he, he's never recorded as saying a word. Joseph is the silent man of the nativity story. Maybe in school nativities he might get a line, presumably speaking to the imaginary innkeeper who doesn't appear in the gospel accounts, but um, he doesn't have any lines in the Bible. He's simply faithfully, quietly doing what is right. I love this character, Joseph. That's why I chose that name for my son. Well, also because his grand, his great grandfather, my grandfather, was called Joseph. Um, but this character, Joseph, and the Old Testament Joseph, to me, are wonderful, godly men. A man here who quietly, simply does what is right, who listens to God, who hears from him, and who obeys. And as the angel speaks to Joseph in the dream, he calls him the son of David. There again is this echo of the Old Testament, the descendant of David the one in David's line. He says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Again, no doubt that Mary is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. We read it earlier on uh, before uh, Joseph. She was with child from the Holy Spirit, verse 18. And now the angel says it. You can imagine why Matthew would be at pains to emphasize that because this would have been a point where Christians may have been attacked by their enemies, that their their Lord, the Messiah, that they claimed to follow Jesus was actually born illegitimately. Well, he wasn't. He was born to married parents, uh, but uh, he was not illegitimate in his conception either because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But the angel continues and says, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Jesus, of course, means the Lord saves. It's the New Testament version of the Old Testament name, Joshua. Um, in Greek, it becomes Jesus, Jesus, uh, which means the Lord or Yahweh saves. What a wonderful name. It's not a unique name. Uh, it's certainly not a name that I would ever hear a child called here in my part of the world, in Ireland or the UK. I do know that it's used as a name for boys in Spain or Spanish-speaking countries, Jesus. But of course, uh, at the time when Jesus was alive, it wasn't a, an abnormal name uh, any more than Joshua might be in my part of the world today. But um, it was a name full of significance. God saves God delivers, God rescues. He is going to be the saviour. And the angel continues to explain and says uh, he will save his people from their sins. Notice that again, verse 21. Um, you see, the people of Israel at this time when Jesus was born were under oppression from the Romans. If you ask the average Jewish person, did they need saved? They would say yes. And if you said what from, they would say those Romans. We need to be set free to be independent, to follow the law of God, to worship God and to be uh, his people. Well, of course, none of that is wrong. That is true. But the core need, the real need that Jesus came to 
deal with the, the fundamental need of human people, if you've read the Old Testament, is not oppression from other people. It's not even oppression from the devil. It is our own sin, our rebellion against God. The Old Testament makes that very clear, the, the sacrifices that were provided for sins. But here is Jesus who is going to save his people from their sins. Make no mistake about it. Sometimes when people uh, read the New Testament, they say all this business of Jesus saving us from sins and his death being an atonement and a sacrifice, that's that's all from, from Paul and other uh, apostles writing the, the New Testament letters, the epistles. What Jesus taught about was not really uh, spiritual salvation, it was social salvation. He was a social reformer. He was uh, trying to overturn the oppressive systems of his day. Now, Jesus certainly said much about oppressive systems amongst people, and he called for a different way of living together, a kingdom way. The Sermon on the Mount, which we'll come to in Matthew 5, is a wonderful uh, portrayal of life together under God's rule. But the point is that Jesus doesn't say you, you build God's kingdom by making an effort to live that way. He says that you enter God's kingdom through humbling yourself and trusting in God. And of course, the whole story of the Gospels leads up to the cross of Jesus, which in Mark's Gospel, it tells us that Jesus said that he, in chapter 10, verse 45, that he came to give himself as a ransom for many, to pay the price for sin. Yes, Jesus called people to live differently, to love one another, to uh, to not to oppress each other. Those things are truly Christian values, but they flow from the experience of salvation from sins. Jesus came to die as a sacrifice for sin. And it's right here at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, in case we might be in any doubt at all, that Jesus' mission is going to be at its core, at its foundation, a spiritual mission of salvation from sin which will have life-changing and society-changing and kingdom-building significance. Christians are kingdom people who live in obedience to God in response to his salvation from our sins. Now, if Jesus is going to be the saviour from our sins, that raises a question, doesn't it? How can he, how can anyone, any person save people from their sins? Surely each one of us has to suffer and die and be judged and punished for our own sins. But there is the wonderful truth, of course. Jesus, and Jesus alone, is free from sin. He is sinless. He is the one who came to fulfil the Old Testament law, who lives a sinless life. And as we move on in Matthew's Gospel, we'll see that when he is baptised, he goes into the desert and is tempted or tested there and yet is sinless. He does not give in to Satan's temptations. Jesus is the sinless one. That too is why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. The virgin birth is not just an awkward claim of ignorant people who were pre-scientific and didn't understand how babies are conceived. People knew at that time that, that 
how babies are conceived. I mean, they weren't stupid. Uh, and a virgin birth was a really quite a radical claim to make. How is it possible? But it was necessary. God brought it about. The, the gospel writers simply record it because the angels declared it. Why was that important? Because sin is inherited. Adam sinned, and in Adam all sinned. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, that that just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death passed upon all men because all have sinned. So we sin just like Adam did, and we inherit a propensity to sin, a sin nature, if you like, from Adam. That's what Christians tend to call original sin, that when Adam sinned, all of humanity sinned. Adam and Eve were the only human beings at that time, and so they led the whole human race into sin. And every descendant of Adam is born in sin, shapen in iniquity, to use the words of the scriptures. That's not something that we have to acquire. It is something intrinsic to us. But Jesus is not a descendant of Adam. Well, he has a, a human genealogy. We see that in Matthew 1 and also in Luke's gospel. But he's not genetically descended. God does a work of new creation. This is the beginning of a new human race. Jesus does not inherit sin. Now, I need to be careful. I said God does a new genetic creation. I'm not saying that sin somehow is transferred in our genes. I think our genes carry uh, some of the consequences of sin because sin uh, and the curse that God brought because of sin uh, has distorted nature. And that means that our genes are prone to mutations and each of us inherits some faulty genes or genes that don't do as good a job as they should do. So each one of us is affected by sin, including in our genetic makeup, in our bodies. But I'm not saying that sin itself is inherited in our genes. But the virgin birth was necessary to break the line of descent from Adam. Here is a new creation, a new Adam, as the Apostle Paul puts it, but who is also the seed of the woman. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, there you'll read, I think it's verse 15, about the promise that God made to Eve. Just as God cursed the earth, notice he didn't curse Adam and Eve, but he cursed the earth because of their sin. And he cursed the snake, the serpent, Satan, who had deceived them. But he doesn't curse the human beings, but, but he does uh, say that there will be consequences of their sin because of the curse that he's put on the earth. Adam will have to labour and toil to, to get food uh, and Eve will have pain in childbearing. But then he gives this wonderful promise that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, in the Hebrew it's the word seed, will triumph, will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will bite his heel and he will crush the serpent's head. Now that's a strange word, the word seed. It's the word that is significant in the Hebrew of Genesis. It's a shame that we don't always see that because various words are used to translate it. 
literally it's the same word that's used for seed from a plant it's also the word that would be used for semen uh, in other words that that's something that a man contributes to the process of conception but in in Genesis 3.15, it's the seed of the woman, which is odd because a woman doesn't have seed. But of course, it's significant because it's it's for, foretelling the fact that, that the Messiah, the saviour, the serpent crusher, the one who will finally defeat Satan and sin and death is not going to be the seed of Adam, but the seed of the woman, so to speak. He has a, a mother but no earthly father. Joseph will become his adoptive father, but he is not genetically the father of Jesus. So the virgin birth is both for, for uh, prefigured in that uh, verse in Genesis. It's also prefigured in the prophet Isaiah, which verse 22 continues to, to quote. And of course, uh, this is a, a theme in the Gospels, especially in Matthew's Gospel, or or no less in Matthew than in any of the other Gospels, that there is this uh, constant repetition of how the Old Testament, the scriptures are being fulfilled, the words of the prophets. Verse 23 is quoting from Isaiah chapter 7, which talks about a, a virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Now, the word virgin here in the Greek is uh, can only really mean someone who has not had sexual intercourse, what we would mean by a virgin today. In the Hebrew of Isaiah 7, the Hebrew word that's used could mean that, or it might just mean a young girl, a young woman will conceive. So the Greek translation here in, in Luke gives us greater precision as to the meaning of that prophecy in Isaiah. But it is important to make that distinction because that prophecy in Isaiah 7 and the prophecy in Isaiah 9 that talks about uh, the, the, the child shall be given, a son shall be born, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, uh, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Isaiah 9 verses 6 to 7, and of the increase of his kingdom there shall be no end. Those prophecies are, are part of a section of Isaiah that is looking for a future hope, but not necessarily or not only a hope that is long in the future. Isaiah is about 700 years before Jesus. And these prophecies are clearly looking forward to the birth of Jesus, but they also had an immediate relevance at that time. The name, the child to be named Emmanuel, is one of a number of children, at least three, who are given names in the uh, in those chapters of Isaiah. And some of those are very clearly the prophet Isaiah's own children, or at least I say very clearly, I think it's clear when you read the commentaries and they explain how those chapters are functioning. And the name, of course, Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, could be said to be a name, those his name shall be called, and then it's a string of names, a very long name. In the original Hebrew, if you string together, uh, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. It's not multiple names, but one name, one long hyphenated name. That Those prophecies of Emmanuel and of the, the one who will be called Wonderful, etc., 
those probably had an initial historic fulfilment in the time of Isaiah or shortly afterwards. Isaiah was prophesying at a time when the southern kingdom of Judah, where he lived, was threatened by the Assyrians. The northern kingdom of of Israel, the ten tribes, had been exiled by the Assyrians, and it looked as if that nation of Assyria might conquer Jerusalem and defeat Judah and take them into exile too. And if that had happened, then the nation of Israel would have been wiped out because the Assyrians assimilated people into their empire. God didn't let that happen. And those prophecies of Isaiah had an immediate short-term fulfillment in a lesser sense through uh, the line of David at that time, the kings who came and, and how God restored the fortune, fortunes of Israel. But of course, like many Old Testament prophecies, there was a second horizon. There was an immediate horizon at the time or shortly afterwards of a, of a child who would be born. It's not always easy to say exactly which child that is, whether one of uh, Isaiah's children or one of the royal family. But those children were born at that time. But of course, this name, Emmanuel, which means God with us, Matthew tells us, has a greater significance. Not simply that that child will be called Emmanuel because people realise God is with us, in the same way that the name Jesus doesn't just say God will save us, but that Jesus is the God who saves us. And Jesus is Emmanuel because he is God with us. That's not made clear here in Matthew, but it is absolutely clear in John chapter 1 when John describes the incarnation. He says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And later on, he says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So Jesus is the greater fulfillment of Isaiah, the one who fulfills not just a temporary partial deliverance for God's people, but eternal permanent, complete deliverance. The one who is not just a reminder of God's faithfulness, but who is the faithful God, mighty God, everlasting Father, as Isaiah 9 puts it. And so Joseph wakes up from his sleep, verse 24, and I love the way it puts it. As I said earlier, he is the silent, faithful, obedient man. When he woke up, he did as the angel commanded him. He took his wife so he married Mary, so that by the time Jesus was born, they were married. But he knew her not. In other words, verse 25, that phrase, a Hebrew way of, of uh, politely talking about sex. Um, in, verse, in the NIV, it says he didn't consummate their marriage. He didn't sleep with Mary until after she had given birth to a son. And Joseph names him Jesus. Again, I love that. Joseph silent on the pages of scripture, no words from him recorded, but he is the one who gives the name that the angel has foretold, this name Jesus, that will become the name above every name, because at that name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, echoing again from the prophecy of Isaiah. So Joseph plays this pivotal role in the story of salvation, but it's his son, Jesus, who will be the saviour.